Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, thank you so much for downloading our podcast, The Honey & Co. My name is Itamar Srulovic. Me and my wife have some restaurants in Fitzrovia and a couple of cookbooks. Ever since we opened our restaurant, we've been meeting so many incredible people who are cooking, who are making food, who are writing about food. And we just want to have a little bit more time with them. We invite our favorite people once a month or twice a month to our deli, Honey and Spice. And we sit down and have a longer chat We cook from their books and from their culture, and this is a recording of these talks. I hope you enjoy it. Tonight we're going on a cruise around the Black Sea with one of our favorite authors. It's Caroline Eden. She was here before with her book Samarkand, which was a journey into Central Asia. And now we're going around the Black Sea. Caroline went on a journey from Odessa through Istanbul to Trabzon in Turkey. We loved hearing about it and the food was incredible. Hope you enjoy listening to it and that you get to try some of the food at your own home. The feeling that you have with a the, with the book that you really, really love. So I've been kind of I'm torn between just wanting to just pinch through it and, and, you know, get to the, you know, get more and more and more and to kind of pacing myself and just stretching the pleasure of reading this, this book um, that we were waiting for for a long time by one of our absolute food heroes and like writing heroes actually, Caroline Eden. Her last book, uh, Samarkand, was really one of our favorite old times books, still is. And uh, one of the first guests in the... Yeah. Number two, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so even before we were recording it. So we were so happy that we have it for posterity now. The book is called Black Sea. The book is about <laughs> the Black Sea. And it's not somewhere that we think about. It's not kind of an exotic destination that we uh, dream of or that we try to avoid. It's just not really, never been on my consciousness. But what I'm discovering more and more as I go through this book that kind of so much of our culture and so much of our civilizations in the kind of in Europe and the kind of edges of it is coming from the Black Sea and is to do with the Black Sea and this is a hugely important area and has been 
for such a long time, it's also an area of, of delicious food. How, how did you come up with, 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 this, with the theme? How did you come up with wanting to write about this, the Black Sea? Um, so I'd finished Samarkand and I wanted to do a travel book about the Black Sea, which is somewhere that's always interested me. And I wanted to come up with a concept where it would be a straight travel writing book, travel literature. You read it from start to finish, but I would have recipes in it. And the idea was to, sounds a bit cheesy, but to taste the journey. So I wanted to do a travel book that people could read, see and eat. So um, James, my husband and I, back in 2013, we did a very long trip overland from London to Tbilisi in Georgia. And um, as one does, as one does. We, yeah. <laughs> kind of what we do so my husband's a journalist as well and we took six weeks to do this trip and it was a it was a really great trip it was actually a holiday well, train or train, train bus uh, a lot of bus replacements sadly which was frustrating <laughs> but as it always is um but it was a really amazing trip and we'd set off and um when I got home and I started to think about the trip and I downloaded the photos and I started to write up some notes about what I'd seen along the way you know, I'd seen Munich beer halls, amazing pavement cafes in Belgrade, churches in Sofia and incredible mosques in Istanbul. And then the image that really stuck in my mind, and this is really the truth, was the moment I first saw the Black Sea. And we had been travelling on a bus and there'd been a road traffic accident. And it had been a bad accident. And we'd been held up and there was a really sour as there would be sad mood in the bus. Um, and then as we'd approached the sea, people took their mobile phones out their pockets and they started to take photographs of the waves. And this kind of sense of calm and a quite heavy spirituality came into the bus and just mellowed everyone out. And that was the moment when I thought back to that trip, that was the image in my mind. And I started to read about the Black Sea. Um, there are some really good historical books on the region. And I was just like, wow, this is a multi, multi-layered place. And I'm really interested in the former Soviet Union and Central Asia, like that's my area. And this reminded me of that because there's been so much mass migration around the shores and really, really deep history. So I said, I want to do this book. And I went to Odessa on an assignment and I'm a regular visitor to Istanbul. I did one long trip, which is the one that's recounted in this book, starting in Odessa and finishing in Trabzon, which is northeast Turkey. It's a sort of city that stands like a sentinel out to the sea. No one visits from the west there anymore, really, um, with Istanbul neatly in the centre. So when, once you had this idea of, you know, you've kind of encountered, and this is all beautifully written in the book, and I feel I'm, I'm kind of ruining it for you, but... You know, this is just a taster because there's so much more. It's a beautiful passage in the book. Uh, once you've set your mind on, on, you know, this place and its importance to you and, you know, you know that there's something there, you know that there's something fascinating, it's still a huge undertaking. I mean, it's how, how, how do you pack something so big into, you know, the cover of a book? How do you go about, like, what's the strategy? <laughs> what do you say to yourself? I mean, I'm a travel writer by trade, so I, I, you know, I write, I go on assignment for The Guardian and the BBC and people like that, and I'm quite used to teleporting into a place and doing the research before and trying to figure out what, what I need to get out of a place quite quickly and what's of interest there. Um, so, obviously, I did quite a lot of research before I set off and tried to cherry-pick places where 
which I thought would deliver me what I was looking for, which were food stories, but also really the human stories. Um, and that was how I chose. So it was really in libraries. doesn't sound very exciting, but no, that's I mean, the truth. But I'm libraries thinking even, even in libraries, say you, you're looking at... Uh at a place like Odessa, which is, you know, in, in black sea terms, is a relatively young city. It's only... 1794. Yeah, yeah. so it's a young, baby, yeah. really. I mean, surely there's so much material to just go through. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I, I was saying to Itamar earlier on, I, I did a master's degree in Jewish studies, Middle Eastern studies, Jewish studies at SOAS. And um, we'd studied about Jabotinsky, the revisionist uh, Zionist leader who was very important to the founding of Israel. And... I knew, I knew about sort of Odessa from that, and I had a picture in my mind, and then it was the literature. And it just so happens that a lot of the great sort of Russian and Ukrainian writers, Pushkin, Gogol, uh, Babel especially, write amazingly well about food. I mean, they're not food writers as we would think of them, obviously, but once you start to read their work, their descriptions of countryside and orchards and feasts are amazing. And that inspired me too. So it's quite a historical book. There's quite a lot of history and literature in there. Um, and that's, again, right across... Right across the entire region. The region. There's, 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 um, I just read uh, about Adam Mickiewicz. Yeah, it's very hard it? to pronounce. Yeah, Adam Mickiewicz <laughs> and about his, you know... Uh, food description about Beagles that you just, you know, yeah. you, you sit there and you do drool a little bit. Right, no, he's, he's an incredible, he writes incredibly well about food. He's, you know, Poland's national poet, um, and I didn't know anything about him, but I suddenly found I was following in his footsteps quite by accident. So um, he'd been in Burgas on the Black Sea in Bulgaria, where we had been, and then he died in Istanbul um, of cholera. So I had to go there as well and find, you know, we went to where he died um, before he was sent by ship, I think, and is now buried in, war, um, in a crypt in Warsaw in a grand cathedral where he belongs. It's never going where you think it's going, and is, it's not a straightforward line. And that's possibly, I don't know if it's the story of, of mass migration, the story of trade, or the story of strife, but there's this wonderful, really wonderful description here in, in, in the chapter about Odessa, about this novel of the, the dining, the, the chairs, oh, the what's chairs. it called? Ilfen Petrov's 12 Chairs. Yeah, so it's a, it's a Soviet story that then became a, um, a Mel Brooks movie, a Syrian TV show, and what is it, two Soviet movies. Yeah. So it's the kind of thing that you think you're going down a path, and then it takes a completely different <laughs> turn, and then another one. But the Odessans are very proud of it, and they've got this sort of, it's quite hideous really, but sort of gold, <laughs> gold chair just sort of there on the side of the, uh, the pavement. I thought, what earth that? And I was like, oh, of course. Because Odessa's a very literary city and they couldn't let that bar go yeah. pass by. And it, the people stand and pose with it. And also, again, with the, the unexpectedness of it all and the, the kind of meeting of people, everyone is there. You know, there's, there's a story, a wonderful story about Swiss wine growers in Bessarabia, which is w w between the Ukraine and... And Romania and Bulgaria, yeah. it's, which is a region I've never heard of. What what are Swiss winemakers doing there? It's really you know so unexpected. Many unexpected stories. So you're you're right. When I set off, I had certain things. I'd made notes of lots of notes about what to try and find and you know stories to try and discover. But then it was the unexpected things which turned out to be the most interesting, like these winemakers who had left 
and had travelled overland in the 1850s and before before that to settle in an area called Shabag, where they've now got a very good Georgian-run winery. But um, when they arrived, this is a really ancient terroir. Anyway, the Turks had been there and Germans had been there before as well. So they were kind of, again, it's that multi-layering. The Tsar had, had given a call for people to develop the land and they, they went. And now there's not much of a trace. There's little bits, but it's, there's again, not, there's the not multi-layering. There's not a population there. But did you often find yourself completely bowled over and surprised regularly um yeah i mean istanbul obviously many very very good food writers have written a lot about istanbul so i i didn't want to get too into istanbul i only wanted to look at it from a black sea perspective so that was my focus when i was there and of course uh it was amazing i mean every taxi driver i seemed to hail was from the black sea the radio stations would be from the Black Sea. Uh, it's, once you start looking for things, it, they just appear. They pop at you. Yeah, I say that Istanbul's sort of the Black Sea's great diaspora, and it, it is really. Um, everybody is there. You know, yes, the big stories and the big kind of national migrations are all told here, but also very small, specific, personal stories that somehow, you know, and this I would, I would really... I mean, what I'd love ideally is for Caroline to read the entire book from start to finish. You don't want that. No. <laughs> I'm sure I do, you know. I'm sure I do. I'm just going to ask her to read this really beautiful, kind of heartbreaking story, but that is also full of life and, 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 and a little bit of you know, joy as well. Mm-hmm. And it somehow sums up maybe the, the mood of... of it does it's the darkness and the light through the through the black sea region and i think when you're writing about history you have to give the personal stories just to bring them to life otherwise i think it gets very dry doesn't it when you're trying to learn and i was on a steep learning curve with this book as well um the whole time so we're in bulgaria and we're in a very small fishing village um not far from the turkish border and the essay the book is broken up into essays it's called the last fisherwoman of bulgaria and I've got a quote at the top by Shakespeare. The sea's a thief whose liquid surge resolves the moon into salt tears. Elena's life as a fisherwoman began on a bet. Surely she, a woman and a mother to young children, could never catch as many bluefish, goby and bonito as her brawny male neighbours. Born into a family of black sea fishermen, she decided to prove them wrong and quickly started to match the men's daily hauls, succeeding time and time again. Today, fewer people are willing to risk their lives fishing out on the Black Sea, and Elena believes she is the last fisherwoman left in Bulgaria. From her tiny fishing village right by the Turkish border, she still takes her small boat out, travelling up the Ropotamo River that flows from the Stranger Mountains to the Black Sea. No one wants to do this job anymore, people just come and go, she told me, adding that the pursuit is just as male-dominated as it ever was. I met Elena on the way from Burgas to the Strangenet National Park in a ramshackle little cafe where she sometimes helps out, right by the fishing huts. In the gummy sea air, she spoke animatedly of saints and storms and of praying. Fishermen are true believers, she said, explaining how she held on to a catch when her boat was almost capsized near Sozopol, just up the coast. As she spoke, her eyes widening, she gripped a make-believe bow, and pulled an imaginary rope through her hands. Around us, burly, cynical sea dog men 
sank beers and small scrappy dogs cocked their legs. On fishing trips, Elena carries with her bread and a stove for cooking fish, and she often remains out all night. In the unmatched silence of the open sea, she likes to talk to the seagulls and to the waves, especially when she's night fishing, and she likes to ignore the rules too, including the number one rule, rarely ignored by fishermen, that says, never go out alone. Bulgarians, Romanians, Ukrainians, Russians and Georgians all call this sea the Black Sea in their respective languages, but the earliest Greek name was Pontos Axenos, meaning inhospitable or sombre sea. Later it became the Euxine, confusingly meaning welcoming sea. Historians think this was either meant as wordplay to appease its cruelty, or else it was ironic. Whatever its name, it is famously fickle. Wilder and darker in colour than the Mediterranean, it is ringed by perilously high cliffs, meaning no shore, few natural ports and little means of escape from lashing storms. Strong winds galloping down from Russia have regularly banded Elena's boat about, and when it's really bad, only her faith can comfort her. Not only is life at sea a magnificent calling, she admitted, the rewards and risks are addictive too, as is the danger of going out alone, which she prefers. Then, without warning, my chat with Elena began to curve off course. I could feel it coming, a shift as her gaze changed from excitable to distant. Then, from behind her red-hennaed hair, falling in rings around her soft cheeks, tears started brimming in her eyes. I could see she was struggling with something off limits, a recent memory or calamity. What was meant to be a light interview suddenly felt darker, almost confessional. Closing her eyes, she began. Her husband had died when their babies were young, leaving her to get by on her own. He'd be proud if he could see her now, she said, out there on the ways, making an independent living, using her hard-earned skills. This was why she had to fish. She had no choice. It was a case of survival. For the past three decades, just like her tough male equivalents, Elena has lived to tell the tale of shoals, fog and bitter storms, proving that skill, bravery and talent on the open sea matter just as much as muscle. Then her pale eyes grew distant again and I sensed there was more to come. Now I go out to sea to fish and to think in peace of my daughter who took her own life, Eleanor whispered. It was only out there, among the fathomless sea, a world that Elena had managed to make her own, that she could find the peace and strength needed to heal and take in the loss. Her parting words to me were, what the sea can give you, nothing else can. There was little else to say. Stunning. <laughs> yeah, it's so beautiful. I mean, beautiful story, so beautifully written. And there is kind of that, that mood about it that's really, really appealing. Uh, I, I loved it. Yeah. Thank you. Very, very beautiful. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So you had to kind of find the, the balance writing this book between the, the kind of the global or, or the, the, the wider view and to the very personal. And I think, in a way, cooking does that very well because, you know, a, a dish or a bit of food is, is a kind of a sign of culture, mm. but it also is something that happens in someone's home, in someone's body. Something amazing, I can't quite think of anything else that's quite like it. Because it is, you know, it is a story, it is a narrative, but also there's something that's 3D and real that can happen in your kitchen. And I, I have to say that the, the food here, you know, I w- wanted to cook so much of it. We've, we've cooked tonight, we've cooked uh, tzimes which is a Jewish... Am I right in saying it's Jewish? Yeah. I think the word's Yiddish, isn't it? Does it yeah. mean a big fuss? Well, according to Julia, our chef, who's Polish, it, you'd say, like, Tzimis about something that's excellent. So you'd go, like, Tzimis. Mm, nice. This is what she said. Yeah. But I, I don't know. It's not, you know, the British Library. She has been known to make things up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not exactly scientific. But she would say... This nice, is how she like does, Julia. It's just a nice mixture, isn't it? Yeah. So we've made that. We made the rice pilaf with chestnuts and sage, which is, this is what I was That's sniffing. my favorite thing in the book, yeah. I have to it's, say. It's just amazing. We've done the, um, I, can't, I don't know you'll pronounce it, the pie. Zelnik? The Zelnik pie. Uh-huh. Again, something that's, you know, you can see, I was surprised to see it so far east because it's something that feels very Balkan to me, uh, which is a beautiful phyllo pie with uh, with herbs and, and spinach and cheese and stuff. Very easy. Yeah, very, very easy. Yeah. I mean, the food is very easy. Incredibly it's not, easy. But it is home food. It's home food. It's all I could do. I yeah. mean, I'm not, I'm not a trained chef. I'm, I'm, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not I'm talking from king. your side. I'm talking about the source uh. material. <laughs> it's not yeah, fancy, elaborate no, restaurant uh, food. No, I mean, you can eat the, the fanciest Black Sea thing I've ever eaten was 
um, at Mikla in Istanbul. And when it's anchovy season, hamsi season, yeah. he does these um, amazing little olive oil toasts and suspends the anchovies in the middle. But this is like advanced, super duper, really expensive. Okay, I'm, just, I'm just trying to visualize it in my head. How does it work? It's incredible. They're incredible. But yes, generally, it's super simple food everywhere across. And was that was that something that? I mean, in a way, it's it's kind of a, a huge advantage that you have because because it is such an amazing way to evoke a place and to let the readers you know, take him very physically in, into that place and into that culture. It felt very natural for me because before I started to do, have anything to do with food, when I'd just write straightforward travel articles, yeah. always about a third of it would be about the food or markets yeah. because it is such an easy way into a culture. It's everybody eats three times a day. Food is political, but if you're, you know, it doesn't have to be. And it's a, it's a kind of very good introduction quickly into a place. Yeah. So it's, it seemed like it's a natural progression. Travel and food go so well together. And in a way, food is, is something that's very much connected to a place mm -hmm. and to a culture and is very much a way of evoking that culture and especially in, in this book, which is, if you boil it down, is, is a story of, of immigration, really. Mm -hmm. Or is a story, if not immigration, then yeah. migration. Migration is definitely the central theme in yeah. that book. And this what what repeats again and again is how, you know, people create, you know, maintain their culture through their food. And there is again, I'm not, I'm just, I really, I don't want to ruin this book for you because I really want you to, you know, read it and enjoy it. But there is the the beautiful story. You can tell maybe a little bit. About is this in Istanbul? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I met this incredible woman um, who was from North Ossetia and had. The Highlanders had been evicted about 150 years ago and they fled across the sea and Istanbul has always been great at soaking up people um, and they had arrived to Istanbul and she was like third or fourth generation and she travelled back home um, about a decade ago. Even, even after fourth generation, Yeah, they'd never, that's, never gone. That's home. Yeah, exactly. So she says, so they're Circassians but back you know they're actually obviously in the north Caucasus. they're all split up into english or assessing different groups but when she traveled back what she said was really interesting was that because of the soviet influence their culinary traditions had basically been wiped out but she'd kept hers in turkey and they'd been much better preserved there than they had been there because they'd been allowed to just keep their traditions as they were so and that did repeat itself a bit yeah. Uh, e even just in Istanbul. So the Tartars kept their Tartar recipes. Much better than it was. I, I don't know. He didn't really say that, but I got the impression perhaps that was the case. And he hadn't changed. <laughs> the man that I, I speak to about the Tartar recipe, the place called Site Lamanti, um, he hadn't changed the recipes at all the, the whole time he, he'd been working there. He sort of started off as a busboy and worked his way up, bought the restaurant and had not changed any of the recipes. But that's Istanbul, and I think that's yeah, what the that's, Turks that's do. That's the restaurant with the two dishes. Exactly, the restaurant with the yeah. two dishes. And <laughs> the irony was something like the name of the restaurant in English meant choice or something. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was two things on offer. Well, that's a choice. Mansi, yeah. Mansi or a tartar barek. But um, 
Yeah, he was great. And he, he bought an incredibly expensive pasta maker from Italy that he'd imported. But he said his, his aim was only ever to make it a little bit better. But I think the Turks are especially good at mastering one thing amazingly well and only doing that thing and keeping it, you know, through the generations. Yeah, like elaborate hamsi yeah, and olive oil hamsi toast. Yeah, pilaf or, or whatever. Yeah, but, but just focusing. And I think that's what makes it, to me, the world's greatest kitchen. Well, there is, there is uh, something very comforting about a restaurant with two items on the menu. Definitely. Yeah. But you can vary the size. Maybe that's the choice. <laughs> no, you can yeah, have it in... Yeah, there's there there choice with the drinks. You could have Iran or Fanta and obviously now alcohol. But yeah. Yeah. There, there wasn't much choice, but it was busy. I think while we're in Istanbul, I, w- I would love for you guys to... Do you mind? Am I ruining it for you? No. No, no, no. It would just give you an appetite for more. But uh, I would love for you to read about the, the ship spotting in Istanbul. Oh, okay, yeah. And this is, again, this is going from the very, very personal to the kind of global in a very real sense. Yeah. Um, so the essay is called Bosphorus Blues, and the quote at the top is a Byron quote. Uh, Each villa on the Bosphorus looks a screen, new painted or a pretty opera scene. Ship spotting is a habit and an art form in Istanbul. To join in, all you have to do is take a pair of binoculars and position yourself at a decent vantage point on the Bosphorus. Connecting the Black Sea to the Aegean Mediterranean, the Balkans and beyond, the Bosphorus is a 20-mile strait and sea channel upon which a never-ending parade of warships, containers and destroyers navigate. Watching the Bosphorus is a bit like turning the pages of a newspaper. A snapshot would include rainbow-coloured goods containers carrying refrigerated lorries of Ukrainian and Georgian produce, cheese, herbs and butter, their captains using the Bosphorus and the Black Sea to get around Russia's closed land borders since the annexation of Crimea, ferries of Turkish tomato truckers crossing the Black Sea from Turkey to Ukraine now that Russia has banned their import, Russian ships travelling from Syria, sorry, Russian ships travelling to Syria from Sevastopol, home to the Kremlin's Black Sea Fleet since Grigory Potemkin, favourite of Catherine the Great, founded it there in 1783, and northbound Russian Navy fleets returning from the war. This is where Putin exhibits Moscow's naval might, grating the nerves of some Istanbulus with his missile cruisers and landing ships moving right through the heart of the city. Once a routine site during the Cold War era and the Balkans' conflict, these hulking warships are a steady presence once again as the Kremlin reasserts its influence in the Middle East. Istanbul's strategic position, crucial for trade and diplomacy, is as important as it is long. With such drama and unfolding politics, the Bosphorus can make other waterways, even great historic rivers, seem flat and uneventful in comparison. But this is not to say that it's all war, trade and industry. The Bosphorus is also Istanbul's soul, a vital source ingrained in the life and minds of its residents. Serving as a getaway from the traffic and the noise and chaos that a city of 15 million or more shelters, it is a constant lifeline and in the height of summer, breathing in cooling salty breezes from a commuter ferry when the city sweats and swelters, <coughs> can be nothing short of sanity saving. It is somewhere to escape to and gaze upon. So much so that it is almost impossible to think of Istanbul without picturing it. I love that. I love, I love thinking 
you know, that you can actually see global events with your eyes, That's you know, amazing. in the middle of yeah. town. We're, we're so used to getting everything secondhand. But this is, yeah, this is incredible to me. And, and in, incredible about Istanbul is, is that bit, and, you know, in this book that captures it so well. And this it seems like the, you know, the proximity to the water and the water as a kind of passageway, you always get that. You know, you always get to see that the global events, you see them with your eyes, you're so close to them. And, and there's... Uh, um, I should say something about Istanbul just yeah. quickly, maybe, because I did toy with the idea when I was putting this book together about including Istanbul. It is not on the Black Sea, obviously, but it is satisfyingly close to the Black Sea <laughs> and it is connected by the throat of the Bosphorus. So it works quite well. And because it is such a Black Sea city. It is. It, 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 feels, it does work. Yeah. But I did debate it initially and I thought, gosh, because it's sort of they associate a lot with Marmara. But I said, it's, it, it's enough. <laughs> it works. There's enough of the Black Sea culture there to make it work for the book. Well, I think you're probably the authority on the subject right now, so you can call this shot. I don't know about that. (laughs) What is your go-to recipe when you want Black Sea at home? Wow, this is going to sound really lazy. These guys are going to want to know. It is the chestnut pilaf. James and I have it maybe once a month. Wonderful. And I love it. It's really, really easy. I love rice. The sage is quite an unusual flavour in it. Um, I love chestnuts. So, yeah, it is that one. Takes and that's good because we are all going to try it. So that's yeah, nice. yeah. No, no, it's excellent. Yeah. Or the it's Potemkin cocktail. Oh. Okay. That's a curvy. <laughs> I like vodka. So what's, the, what's the Potemkin cocktail? It's very, very simple. It's a bit like a fireside cocktail. And it's um, ice, salt rim, uh, grapefruit, vodka. Oh, nice. It's quite a hefty cocktail. Lots of vodka. And um, you strike a rosemary, a sprig of rosemary, and you just drop it in the glass and it scents the cocktail. Oh, very nice. It's a nice bit of drama at dinner party. Some friends of mine said that they've done that. Yeah, so that's, yeah, and you could pair them together quite well. Yeah, and I'm really sad that we didn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Next time, next time. Seems to me like, you know, we discussed it a little bit, such a big 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 subject and so much material and so much to go through i mean you 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 didn't even scrape the surface i bet you're feeling how 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 did you decide okay i'm going to stop now and move to the next bit i i just want if i felt like i'd taken the reader there enough then i'd move on to the next place um we were lucky in the sense that the research held up when we hit the road, that um, the place is delivered. And yeah, I hung around for a bit. And then if somewhere wasn't working, we gave up. Um, but the, I mean, it's very rare that I, I travel to a place and I don't find something interesting because yeah. everywhere's interesting. Yeah, yeah. People are. People are interesting. Tend to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this book could have been, you know, double in size, Absolutely. I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested how you. Um, get people to share their recipes with you? Because recipes are sometimes something that people are very possessive about. Particularly the restaurant with two items on the menu. <laughs> I'm worried about that, you know, sharing a recipe with you might spoil their... Half his business. <laughs> <laughs> there, are prob- there are probably only a handful of recipes that were given to me in this book. I find, I travel mostly probably in Islamic countries and people are normally incredibly generous. 
I've never had anyone tell me I'm not giving you this recipe. Um, I'm sure that's not me. I'm sure it's them. Um, people have always been very generous in, in giving them to me, writing things down. But really, most of the recipes are in the book are things that I've eaten in cafes, in restaurants, and I've got the ingredients list and I've kind of developed them at home. Um, because I'm not a straight food writer. I'm not going into countries and going into kitchens and really drilling down the recipes. They are authentic, but they're my own take. So some of them have got a little sprinkling of imagination and some of them are straight. So they're a mixture. I remember once, one, one story, I was on the road to the Samela Monastery just outside Trabzon in Turkey. I had this really interesting dish. It was like menemen, you know, the Turkish egg dish people eat yeah. for breakfast. Mm. But it was with chard, and, and they put anchovies in it in the winter. And I said, this is a really interesting thing. Can you... And the chef just came out, and the waiters spoke English, and they wrote it down for me. And I think that, that's fairly typical. And then I got home, and I recreated it, put it in the book. And it's one of my favourite recipes in the book. So it's, it's, and, and, and research again. You know, I get home, and I get into the libraries and books and try and make sure I am being authentic. I can read Russian and speak a little bit. My husband's a fluent Russian speaker. He travels with me quite a lot. I normally travel with a translator and a fixer because when I'm traveling through so many countries, even if I had a working, um, you know, working ability of Turkish, that's not going to serve me particularly well in Romania or Odessa. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, so... I wish I was multi-multi-multi-multilingual, sadly I'm not. If you live in a, a city like London where you could eat the different food every night of the week, you know, for, sort of for three meals a day and everything, like, do you think that makes the world a smaller place or an, and a better place or a, or a less interesting place? Oh, that's a nice question. I think it makes the world a better place and it's what I miss about living in London. So I left London about six years ago. Um, I was a student here and I stayed for a long time and I moved to Edinburgh which is wonderful and I love Edinburgh and its culinary scene is really skyrocketing um, but I do miss the multiculturalism of London and the restaurants because I lo I'd love to be able to just walk to a Georgian restaurant for yes, example or an Ethiopian, or an Ethiopian restaurant and I, I lived in Brixton for five years years ago and that was a, a big part of what I liked living there um, I think yeah London's, London's restaurant scene is unparalleled now, isn't it? It's wonderful. Yeah. And it's quite nice as well, I think, to get a taste here and then travel. So you kind of know roughly, you, you've got an idea. So say you, you were saying you were thinking of going to Georgia. Yes. You could go to Little Georgia, which is just an amazing restaurant, and try the Hachapuri and try the yeah. Georgian food and then go there and try it in situ and see yeah. how it measures up and stuff. And then, yeah, I think that's the great thing about London. I was thinking that about uh, when I was reading about Odessa that it's actually, you, you have fast spaghetti with meatballs there and ice cream and, and, and kind of things that, that, that you wouldn't expect, but you say it is a market town, you know, it's a, it's a poor town. And this is kind of the great things about, you know, market, like I think London is probably the, the global market town. That's Everything right. gets here. And that's the thing, again, with the recipes. You've got to read the book, I think, to understand the thinking behind the recipes because... I was a bit concerned. The Sunday Times featured the book yesterday on, on Sunday, which was amazing, but they chose the meatballs um, yes, from Odessa. And I was a bit like, God, I hope people get that, because the story is that Italians opened the first restaurants in Odessa, and that was the first thing that was sort of served in the restaurants there. But it's not obvious. Obviously, people are going to look at meatballs and think that's an Italian dish. What's it doing in Odessa? But they were the first restaurateurs. So... 
that. I've developed a, a recipe around Mark Twain's ice cream because he writes about ice cream, eating ice cream when he was there in, in Odessa. Odessa yeah. So it's a kind of quite, they're quite imaginative recipes. It's a mixture of authentic and things from history and things from literature all together. There is, you know, we're all looking for the, the undiscovered and the unspoiled. And this very much feels like a lot of it still isn't, still is yeah. saved. I would like you to join me in thanking Caroline for writing this book, for coming here to talk to us. Thanks so much for listening to our latest episode. If you'd like to join one of the next talks, please follow us on social media at Honey & Co or go on our website, honeyandco.co.uk. We would really appreciate if you took some time and rated us at iTunes. Only five stars, please. With a huge thanks to Hester Kant for producing and the music is by the lovely Alice Russell. Thanks for listening. Bye, Felicia's. Every time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.